I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Topless, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So we got a special guest this week. Yeah, very exciting. We're both here, but we have a special guest in addition. <laughs> Our guest this week is Josh Walensky. He is the manager and mashkiach at New York Brat Factory. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Of course. We're very excited to talk to you. Basically, you know, we've been talking over the last few weeks. It's come up in different forms. We talked about all the kosher restaurants in New York that have closed down um, in the last year and how difficult it, that business is. And also just about food and kosher food more broadly is a topic that seems to come up every so often with us. And so we thought it'd be really cool to uh, have an insider in the industry to talk to about some of these issues. So Josh, you're currently working at the New York Brat Factory. Um, Rifki, have you, have you been there? I've been, I think, twice, and I was actually very impressed. So, Josh, thank you so much for your, your food and service. Um, I got, a, I think, a pulled beef one time and a burger one time, but and, and I really liked it. Have you been? Yeah, I was actually just there last week um, and saw Josh. I was with a couple of friends. This We're not being formally uh, sponsored by <laughs> Brad Factory this week, but uh, we are very much on board with what they're doing. First of all, the And food, if they do want to sponsor us in the well, future, definitely Josh, open you know? to it. Yeah, but I mean, the food we, was we great. We will definitely be open to doing that <laughs> the whenever loca- you want. The location is a little bit you know more north right. than some of the other places 106 that's correct 106 in amsterdam on the corner mm-hmm. but if you can make it up there yeah um, i think it's well worth it the place is it's like a very nice ambiance yeah. i would say it's small like i don't think that there aren't like a million tables but i think that it's like kind of there's cool. room there's yeah. room and i also like that the menu doesn't have like an endless number of items it has a, like a, a good amount of things and they and they do those things well right it's like the opposite of those ridiculous kosher restaurants where it's like they Frozen yogurt, pizza, sushi, and it's like, well, well what the do dairy you do? Version, and the <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like Chinese yeah. barbecue, Tex Mex. <laughs> no matter what, you'll always have a sushi menu. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we're into. Jews exactly. love sushi. It's so true. So, Josh, I know you used to work at Amsterdam Burger, and people were talking about how they closed down, but that was only to reopen at a larger location. But this was many months ago, and it still hasn't happened. And whether or not they're going to reopen or not, we would like to ask you. But in addition to that, just the topic of all these kosher places closing down and how difficult it is. Like, What, do you, what can you tell us about the nature of the kosher restaurant business and wh- what's so complicated about it? What's so difficult to stay in business? Well, to start off, the Amsterdam Burger is is reopening there it all depends on when con edison decides to put a gas line in oh that's what's holding it up that is exactly <laughs> what's holding it interesting. up interesting so are, they're just paying rent on this space this they, is crazy. they are paying rent on a monthly basis as we speak wow. and well, it's the upper west side so it's probably not that much money so that's exactly. okay you know yeah 100 <laughs> percent. it's a you know drop in the bucket <laughs> yeah so they, they are reopening they are planning to hopefully before Pesach. Mm-hmm. If not, time will only tell. Okay. And then what about more broadly, the uh, kosher restaurant business in general? There's so many, so many people who keep kosher in New York, you would think that it should be uh, you know, a slam dunk for these places. Right. Exactly. It's, owning a restaurant is very difficult. You know, the kashras all the way down to paying the rent. Every little thing is very, very difficult to to maintain most people don't understand that i read recently that the worst possible business to open in terms of getting return actually being a successful business was a restaurant 
So not I imagine, kosher, just general. Exactly. I imagine speaking. you even magnify that with, with the kosher world. Oh, 100%. Meaning owning a restaurant and running it is totally different because you got to add on the mashkiach. you got to add on the organization that, that brings on the mashkiach for the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So it makes it very, very difficult to pay everything. Plus the days that they can't be open and doing business. Exactly. Well, kosher restaurants are only open 65% of the year. Sixty-five percent of the year. If you wow. take if you take away Friday and Saturdays, including the chagim, then there are sixty-five percent of the of the year that they're open. So, with that being said, paying the mashkiach, paying the rent, paying your employees, paying for food, you know, that comes in, paying the meat, which is very expensive, it takes a toll, and it's you have to know every little intricate detail that comes in and comes out of a restaurant. Well, you, you mentioned the, the cost of the kasher, the, the mashkiach. You know, this article that we spoke about a few weeks ago, the owner of Big Bang Burger that went out of business said that he was paying $60,000 a year on a mashkiach and, and the kasher. Um, are there alternatives to that route? Is there anything a kosher restaurant can do to avoid those kind of fees and stay kosher? There is, absolutely. I mean, paying $60,000 a year sounds sounds about right. And it is very, very expensive. There is an alternative. That alternative is, you know, trust. So if I were to open up a uh, kosher restaurant and I said, we're doing away with the organizations of like the OU or the Star K or whomever, and I decide that you can trust me, it's your choice. Has that been done in New York? From what my understanding is, it has. There is a restaurant downtown doing away with the kashos, and it was about trust. And if you can trust this person, then you can go to the restaurant. I, I want to actually just add, because Josh, I actually went to this restaurant kind of by accident, but this restaurant is called Kishkash, and it's owned by this Israeli woman who, uh, she was already very well known as a chef. She opened this restaurant downtown that was basically a, a couscous-based restaurant. It was couscous with lamb or couscous with chicken or couscous with fish, right? It was maybe five different dishes. And when my husband and I went to the restaurant and we sat down, we actually didn't realize right away. We, we thought it was kosher. We had heard kosher, kosher, kosher. And we didn't realize till we looked at the bottom of the menu where it said, all of the meat at this restaurant is certified kosher, which is when we kind of looked at each other and said, the meat is kosher. You know, what does that mean? There, there's no dairy at the restaurant. And then we noticed a sign on the wall that said in Hebrew, kasher l'ratzon, which means uh, it's a it's an imperfect translation, but something like voluntarily kosher, meaning kosher because we choose to be kosher, not kosher because we're certified kosher in any way. And then we we asked the manager and she she agreed, yes, this it is kosher according to me or maybe according to you or maybe according to us in whose who's houses we would eat it and stuff like that, but it's not kosher according to a certified standard like the OU, like the Star K, like the RCBC in New Jersey, right? So uh, it's a different it's a different model of what kosher looks like. And my understanding is also that this is catching on in Israel as well, because especially where the Rabbanut in Israel has its own set of problems that people don't want to mess around with the Rabbanut, they've started sort of rebelling against that and saying, forget you, I know that I'm kosher. I'm not dealing with your, there's so much scandal and bribery involved. I mean, uh, we don't even need to get into Absolutely. that here, but I'm sure that's here as well. What I'm wondering is, uh, and Uri, sort of, you, you touched on this. I'm wondering, do, do you think that our community would or could sustain that? Like, l- let me ask differently. 
when people come into the restaurant and when people um, are interested in seeing who's the certification or whether there is certification, do you think that there is a sizable number of people who would say, hey, you, you say it's kosher? The meat is comes from a, a kosher place? You know what? That's good enough for me. I'm going to sit down here. You know, do, do you think that that's a, a place that you think our community really would move in based on your experience? It's definitely a, a hard question to answer only because it depends, meaning depends on the, the owner and who is running it because you can have any Joe Schmo running the restaurant or owning yeah. the restaurant and you don't know you don't know him from Adam. So if I don't know him, how am I going to trust him? Right. But if you bring someone in who you know that you can trust, once you get one person to trust, then you get two. And then once you get two, you get four. And then it, and then it uh, goes on build, building it up, right. building it up. So that obviously it it's, takes time. But I can't see there being a wave of, uh, of this occurrence happening. It will take very small steps until it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until someone who is well-known that does it, then I think it will explode. Right. Until like- then, we don't know. I wonder what it would look like if the owners of the, the Brat Factory kind of stood up tomorrow and said, forget this. We're not bothering. Josh, you're our mashkiach. We know you. We trust you. We love you. We are not paying this organization anymore for hashkacha. Josh is our mashkiach. We're going to put it on the wall. I wonder if, if we think that'll affect sales and if we think that would be a growing movement. I'm actually well, like Josh, really curious. Would, would you there's, be there's, no, there's no pressure on that at all. <laughs> if I they mean, said that to you, would you agree to it? Maybe for a little bit of a raise. <laughs> when you say a little bit, yeah. what do you mean? Take all that much money. <laughs> I don't think I would put my name on there because of the responsibilities that I will have and my name will be hopefully not tarnished from that. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay yeah, I guess it's kind of complicated. <laughs> Another topic that we've spoken about a lot in the past and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on it. We've spoken about alternatives to meat, you know, because kosher meat is very expensive. Meat in general, A, expensive, B, not good for the environment, all kinds of reasons why we people want to move away from meat. We've spoken about the Impossible Burger, which is a plant-based uh, hamburger. And we've also spoken about lab-grown meat, which would be like molecularly identical to a regular hamburger that comes from a cow, except this would be coming from a lab where the original cell came right. from a cow, but then they, they right. grow it. It's like it completely it. artificial, but it's exactly sort the of, same. Yeah. There was a really, so there was a really interesting article in the New York Times last week that was called, You Call That Meat? Not So Fast, Cattle Ranchers Say. And it's basically about the cattle ranchers and farm bureaus of America. They're trying to enact a law that says, only something that comes from a cow is allowed to be called meat. And so if it comes from a plant like the Impossible Burger, you can't call that meat. And even if it comes from a lab and it's molecularly identical to a hamburger, you still can't call it meat. So do you, first of all, do you sell the Impossible Burger at uh, Brat Factory? We do not sell the Impossible Burger, but I've been to restaurants that, and I've worked at restaurants that have, mm-hmm. uh, that does sell uh, the Impossible Burger. What do you think of it? I haven't tried it. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know, we we talked about this before, but I still think it's ridiculous that the restaurants that are generally selling the Impossible Burger are all meat restaurants where there's already meat there. Sell the Impossible Burger at dairy restaurants so you can get the cheese and you can really load it up. You know, that's what that's the exciting part of having an artificial burger. I'd rather have the real thing. And whether or not you're telling me about the molecular (laughs) scientific lab uh, about it, the real thing that sounds right is meat that comes from a cow. Mm-hmm. So you're a purist. Yeah, I'm, I'm a purist and I'm an old schoolist. <laughs> yeah. So part of it, it sounds like what you're saying is that it just feels weird. 
Like it's not just about what you know. Maybe they can recreate the juiciness, or maybe they can they can do those things if they're not there yet. Maybe they can get there in the future. But it's just not what a burger is, right? There, there's something feels like a burger to you. It also sounds like what you're saying at the end of the day is it's about creating the best possible product for the consumer. So if the consumer is saying, "Look, these are actually exactly the same. Maybe this new one's even a little bit better," you might change your tune, even though you might personally feel a little weird about it from the perspective of someone who owns a business or who's running a business. You're gonna say, "I'm gonna do whatever is best for my consumer." Maybe it's even better. I can get a little cheaper. It's plant-based, right? So there, there, there's room to move there, but you might still feel a little bit weird about it. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely going to feel a little weird. But as I said before, if it's a it's a phenomenon and people are like jumping all over this impossible burger, then it's not impossible to sell it. Right. Well, Josh, I'm changing gears a little bit. We talked about some of the unique challenges uh, faced by kosher restaurants when it comes to the business side of things. In terms of the clientele, are there any unique challenges in your experience in dealing with the kosher clientele? Are there any uh, special requests or complaints that they have that you think uh, might be a little bit different from the typical restaurant clientele? I have never had one complaint <laughs> in my whole life in the restaurant business. You know what they say, the, the, the waiter who comes up in the, in the kosher restaurant goes over to the table of the people who are eating and says, is anything okay? <laughs> I actually had Jackie Mason come to oh, really? Amsterdam Burger. That's awesome. <laughs> what yeah. was that like? What'd he it, say? So Did he just show up or you knew he, he was coming? He, no, I, we had no clue he was coming. Uh-huh. So he showed up with his wife. When he sat down, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in awe of the greatest Jewish comedian <laughs> of all time. No hands down. So he actually ordered a veggie burger mm. and said... Okay, no no bun. Okay. And he gets his food and he was like, can you take it back? I said no caramelized onions also. I'm like, okay, <laughs> no caramelized onions. So what happens? I go up to him afterwards and I said, Mr. Mason, you decided to get a veggie burger at a burger shop. And you mean to tell me that you decided to tell us how to cook our food? And he just started dying of laughter. I was like, I made the greatest Jewish comedian ever, <laughs> you know, laugh. You're like, I can die happy. Yes. <laughs> but complaints that have, everyone always has complaints about, um, about kosher food. People always ask me to, which is normal, the Sephardim always say, can you put the meat on the grill? Mm. As they, opposed to the non-Jewish. Yeah, because yeah. it's, they say that, you know, Rav Avadjo Yosef, I think, says to them that you're supposed to, you know, have a Jew throw on the meat. Huh. And then... So you, the, you'll do that yeah, for them? If, That's if interesting. It, I yeah, never heard that. Yeah, if requested, then I'll do it. A lot of times people will say, you know, what meat do you serve? And we'll tell them, listen, we serve Beit Yosef, and that's what we serve. That's your choice yeah. or Ali's meat. Have you ever been to Evergreen, the grocery yes. store in Muncie? Every time I go there, I'm confused because you have so many sections with different like hashkachas of the meat. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait, I, I don't understand. Is don't kosher or is not me. kosher? Yeah. I don't even understand. Every, every single person the has their own rabbi in Evergreen. Yeah. It, it's, it's mind-boggling to know that there's, there can be 20 kashras labels thrown on to the meat packages. So So – do you find that it's more of a stereotype or you really find like, no, it's true. Like Jewish customers are, are more entitled and complain more than, than non-Jewish customers. And, and, if, and if it's true, you know, why do you think that is? Like, what, what do you think that's about? It's funny because a lot of the times 
or even today, a visitor came up to me and said, sorry, not a visitor, one of the waiters came up to me and was like, man, these Jews, they really are like the most annoying people because they are always <laughs> asking a million. Jewish? No, he, he was <laughs> Colombian. <laughs> Wait, why, why? Because they ask a lot of questions? They, ask, they, they are so like, you know, where is this meat from? And, and he's like, I don't know. It just comes from wherever. Yeah, from the cow. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's slaughtered in a certain way. But then that's where I have to come in and take away from my job where I, they have to ask me, oh, where does the meat come from? Look on the, look on the storefront and you'll see that it's under Rabbi Marmerstein or under the OU. If you don't hold by them, then don't ask your questions about where the meat comes from. If someone, if someone said to me, oh, where does your meat come from? If I told you that. Right. The answer doesn't mean anything. <laughs> exactly. It's just a name. If I said to you, oh, the meat comes from Ali's meat. Okay. Oh, great. That's amazing. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. eat. Big fan. That person has no clue as to what Ali's does with their meat. So they're just asking. They, it's all about the reputation and the name of the meat brand that everyone knows about. Do, do people who are not visibly Jewish or kosher ever just kind of wander in to the restaurant and sit down and eat just because it's there and, and not because it's kosher? I'll tell you a funny thing. I actually had one encounter where we had this Muslim group that walked into the mm. restaurant. It was a packed house at Amsterdam Burger. And they sit down. They're eating their appetizers. I, I'm in the back. And two waiters come, come running in into the back. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, you got to come out here. I'm like, okay, well, why, what, what do I need to come out? They're like, you got to look at their table. They had, what they did was they pulled out cheese from their pocket. Oh my no. God. And slabbed it onto the burger and made it a cheeseburger. Whoa. Shoot. So we had to take <laughs> everything cow. from that table and chuck it. In that case of the Muslims, they, they probably came in knowing it was kosher because right, they probably chose um, they wanted kosher Muslim meat. halal rules allow for Jewish slaughter and, and kosher to qualify for their standards. And that could have been like a nice, uh, you know, kumbaya type of moment, right. but I guess it didn't really work out that way. Did they, did they stay and order new burgers or did they leave? I, I think they just kept whatever they just had eaten and then... Uh-huh. It's like, you're going to take that to go. And then yeah. didn't come back after. Um, we'll see you soon. <laughs> okay. And what, what about just like irreligious people? Do they ever make their way in? Because it's, it's funny. Sometimes with these uh, restaurants, like you mentioned, the one downtown that doesn't have an actual hashgacha, um, the clientele there was not visibly right. orthodox. Yeah, I mean, that's often the sign, in, especially the ones with like sketchy quote-unquote hefshers. Right, as you look around, right. you're like, okay. Uh, right, my thing, I walk in sometimes and I look, do they have a washing station? Right. If they have a washing station, you know it's like standard <laughs> run-of-the-mill kosher, and if they don't, it's like, it's one of the off-brand right. hashkafas. Well, Viva ha- Viva's one of the controversial hechsher places. They have a and they do have a washing oh, station. Yep, okay, there goes that time. theory. And I think they even have the brachas on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it doesn't go to the theory. It just means it falls on one side of the spectrum. Maybe well, it's the exception that proves the rule. I, um, I hate that expression. I it doesn't mean it. anything. I think it's actually no. It's deep. actually I actually um I I looked into it because I got in this huge fight with people. Don't ask. And we actually looked into it, and basically it's an evolution of language thing. It actually doesn't mean anything today because the words you actually I, I can send you an article about okay. it. And of course, guys, I'll put a link in the show notes. I'm sure you're all fascinated by this. But the the etymology of this expression is that this expression no longer 
actually works because proves that the the definition ha- has shifted. Uh, I disagree, but we can talk about it another time. Well, you can't disagree. It's it's history. no. I I could say that it, it might historically have been changed from what it originally was, but I think it still has meaning to it. You can create a new meaning if <laughs> yeah, you want. New sure. <laughs> Anyway, getting back to Josh. <laughs> Josh is like, do oh, I need it. to be here? Uh, another question uh, I want to I ask want to you. continue arguing. <laughs> I can more than welcome It's more to, usually uh, our, we do our that every standard. Week, yeah. no, here, what, I, uh, what I want to ask you is, is there something that you wish more people knew about the restaurant or the kosher restaurant business that you think might be like a misnomer or a misunderstanding that per- is perpetuated in our community? Prices. Just understand that. Why it's more expensive. Why it's more expensive. Because of everything that is, as we've started off with, it all depends on the rent. It all depends on the kashras. It all depends on everything gets added on. So if you see prices are being raised, it's due to the fact that the wages have risen in this year to the minimum wage is about $15 an hour. Not That's not including the drivers and the waiters. But the waiters are getting right now, I believe, nearly $10 an hour plus tips. And they'll soon be getting $15 an hour without tips. So, And that's not even talking about the, the kosher part of the, the industry. Exactly. So if, you're, if we're looking at the future, the future of everyone getting a minimum of $15 an hour, we're looking to cut back on your employees. Right. I guess minimum wage, we could t- maybe talk about that a different <laughs> week, the value of having a minimum wage. Uh-huh. Right, especially because, Josh, you mentioned the higher the minimum wage goes, the more people you might have to let go. Exactly, and it makes it, makes it so much tougher. And then put that in perspective with a mashkiach. So aside, aside from the Muslim group, we actually have this Christian following of the Jehovah Witnesses that, actually would order from us on a, if I'm not mistaken, a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Hmm. Did they, they know you were kosher? Absolutely. They knew right, we so were they're kosher. choosing also uh-huh. because they're kosher. They are choosing because the quality of the meat is that much better than wherever they can find it. Mm-hmm. So they know that coming to us, lo and behold, that they're always asking for a tax exempt. They know that they're getting a better quality of meat and food that comes from our restaurant. Uh, but again, that's a religious group. That is a religious group. Like there, there are regular like non-Jews who come in all the time. Right. They yeah. literally will walk off. The, uh, like, come, are you walk, surprised when you see them? Like, hey, what are you doing here? Or no, absolutely like, not. I'm, I, I'm I not surprised. Like, I'm like, I don't, I don't look at it that way. I look at right. it as like, oh, we sell a good burger. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm happy to hear right, that. Right. No, no, no. But I'm, I think, I'm saying, I think like, also, I'm, not, I'm, I'm saying it's like. Think of it as a, as a business plan, a business model. You're you're not just going for your one clientele of the, the Orthodox Jews. You're going for the clientele of everyone. Who's That's what around. I would expect. But usually, when you walk into a kosher place, right. almost everybody is visibly Orthodox or with somebody who's Orthodox. If you, if you come between when I was at Amsterdam Burger, if you come between six and eight o'clock or even nine o'clock, ninety percent of the people were Jewish. Because mm-hmm. okay, so the non-Jews, the non-Jews not, don't yeah. want to wait online like the exactly. Jews. Exactly, <laughs> it's more expensive. There's lines. Right. That's exactly. also what I wonder when non-Jews walk into kosher restaurants. Are they like, what the hell are these prices? Like they must be so confused. Like you know, however much a burger is fifteen dollars, whatever. Like fifteen dollars for a burger? Are you crazy? Like I feel 15, like if I were not I Jewish, <laughs> <laughs> if I were not Jewish, I would just, or if I didn't care about kosher, I would walk out. You know, it just it feels crazy. But you know. People don't know, I and mean, I'm going back into what we've talked about before, people don't know what goes into making the food. People don't understand 
the prices that go into the food. One of the waiters told me today, he said, you know, he looked up on Yelp and he saw that people were complaining that the prices were too high. Nothing we can do about it. We need to make a living. We need to pay for our lives just like everyone else is. Right. And trying to live a life that we're... Yeah, I mean, you're not a nonprofit. You're a restaurant. But it sounds like, I mean, to push back a little bit, because I'm definitely more on the consumer side, right? I'm the person who walks in and says, you know, oh, X amount of dollars. That's crazy. I'm going to go home and make it myself. But to be fair, that's how capitalism works, right? Capitalism is this constant push and pull between consumers saying, we're willing to spend X. And if you, as the creator, say, well, this product is worth more than X, then you're going to fail because no one's willing to pay it and I'm going to fail because I'm not going to get the product where we're all trying to, to get to that sort of middle ground. So if they don't want to pay it, that's fine. But if you don't have a customer, that's, that's fine too. Right. You know? so I think the difference, no one's doing anyone, anything wrong here. Right, right. I think that, that the difference is if, she's, if the person comes in and says, that's too expensive, I'm leaving, that's obviously her prerogative. But if she says, that's too expensive, you guys you're, you're are immoral wrong. and you're bad <laughs> yeah, that's for doing that. Crazy. That's, I think, what and Josh also, there's saying. nothing wrong with making a profit. Even if you charged $100, you're still right, right to well, do it because she gets to make the choice about whether to right. buy it or not. So, Josh, I had one more question that I was actually just thinking about. I'm not sure how familiar you are with this, but basically there's this huge movement now on Instagram of these sort of like food celebrities. Right, I'm thinking of like, there's like Chef Chaya, there's a lot of other people like this. And a lot of these people don't work in the restaurant industry necessarily or in the catering industry. They just are private people who like to cook and they've really created businesses out of this. It's like really incredible. There's this huge world on Instagram of like these kosher foodies who take beautiful pictures of their food. Sometimes they do events, you know, for the shuls or for things like that. Um, But often they're just, they do sponsored posts and things like that. And also a huge cookbook industry has been created from this. And it feels like there are a lot of people who now like, I'll go to meals where it'll be like, all of the food is from Millennial Kosher, which is a new cookbook or things like that. It's, It's a whole world that people are interested in. And I wonder, A, you know, so if you have any thoughts about that, but B, also specifically, I wonder how much this sort of back to the kitchen and back to cooking movement has influenced or changed people's relationship with restaurants. Because I know for myself, I am not a big cook. I'm not very good at it and I don't love it. My husband's a huge cook and I find that every time we go out to eat, what he says is, I could have done better. And and just <laughs> like my wife. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder sort of, how how much is that a movement or I just feel it because it, it's uh, it's around me, but it's not actually growing. And I wonder to hear your thoughts about that. You know, oh, this whole phenomenon about foodies taking pictures of their food, um, whether or not they are at a restaurant or a catering. I think that's awesome. I think that's cool that people are are posting about their own food and what they are cooked. And are they, you know, I got this from Millennium or whatever. Millennial, yeah, millennial kosher. Cookbook. <laughs> The irony. It's really, it's a really good cookbook. If you guys, I, have I, it. Be, I believe that it is, and I think that it's awesome. I love to cook. Honestly, you can ask my wife. My wife will tell you that. I, I, I we cook from scratch, and my wife, I don't, I, we don't use kosher cookbooks. We never have. My interesting. Yeah. Because, Do you use non-kosher cookbooks? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All non-kosher cookbooks, and then you obviously substitute your. Right. Your, your shellfish for, you know, squid. <laughs> um, and Mashkiach right here. <laughs> that was a good line. <laughs> I am not putting my name on that bulletin board. <laughs> but yeah, so call me old school, but I don't take pictures of my food and, and post it for thousands and ten thousands or how many people are, are looking at my Instagram. I'm only going for my food to eat. 
it's it's a phenomenon. I think it's amazing though that people can actually do that and be like, "Wow, this person is an amazing cook." But we don't know that because mm. they could have screwed up on the whole on the whole recipe, and it just looks great because your photography is amazing. Have you found any of that movement spilling over into the restaurant world? Like, are people more critical, or it doesn't look as nice as they wanted to, and in a way that they didn't perceive it in the past? That happens all the time. Really? <laughs> <laughs> look, no, no one comes to the to our restaurant and says, "Oh my gosh, you know that bun was off by an inch." <laughs> you know, now my whole. Now my whole Instagram photo is going to be screwed up. <laughs> Do you see people taking pictures of the food a lot? Absolutely. Oh. It happens everywhere you go. And it actually happened today with a bunch of girls <laughs> taking pictures of their, of their food and posting on Instagram. Uh-huh. I think it's great and I think it's bad at the same time, but... It is what it is. Do you, you know? see any conflict? Like, do you think that there is, th- in this movement for people to go back to cooking and to get, get back into cookbooks and this this explosion almost of, like, these chefs on Instagram and people being inspired to try their recipes and, you know, things like that, do you find that to be any sort of competition or you think it's a totally different world and people still want to go to restaurants? Like, how, how do you see that that breakdown? I believe that it's twofold, where one is, yes, people are wanting to go back into the kitchen and trying to cook their own thing until they realize that sometimes they can't cook. And then <laughs> It's harder than it looks. Exactly. Oh, this, how looks I feel. Easy. This, this looks easy. I can make it. Next thing you know, the, the oven is burning. Yep. We had to take out our smoke detector. <laughs> I know that's bad. <laughs> I've but... done that numerous <laughs> times. <laughs> I was screwing up too many times. I put mine in next to the air conditioner in the window. Good thinking. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that that leads into people saying, "Okay, I love to cook. I love to make my make food now. However, I want to. I know the new things, the new fads that are opening up, the new restaurants that are opening up. I still want to try it. Right. And then they're gonna realize, oh wow, this food is amazing. I'm gonna come back. Next thing you know, they're putting their cooking on the back burner. <laughs> and next thing you know, they're they're going pretty much every other day back to a restaurant. Right. And I'm hoping that. One day we'll be able to uh, that I'll be open. I'll be able to open up my own restaurant. Mm. You never know. If you're looking for funding, uh, talking tacos pays very well. So Uri and I are pretty wealthy. I'm already <laughs> funded the by place. them. They don't know about it yet. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, we'll be happy to uh, give you a shout out uh, on the show when that restaurant opens up. <laughs> Thank you. I if anyone has a name, they will get 10 percent off their first. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's a great deal. <laughs> okay, I'll think about it. <laughs> okay. All right. Talking talkless, they'll get 5%. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Well, Josh, thank you so, so much for coming. It was really interesting having you on. And if there are any questions that you guys had that we didn't get to, please, as always, email us, talkingtalklesspodcast at gmail.com, or respond and join a conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Talkless Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Drive-In Productions. And this week, thank you to New York Brat Factory for being the honorary sponsor. (laughs) For Uh, lending us, Josh. Yes. I am not going back to work tonight. (laughs) Everybody should check it out. 106 in Amsterdam. Excellent food, excellent ambiance. Great service, of course. Most of all. And when you're there, make sure to say hi to Josh and tell him you loved him on our show. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.